uh, of the Sermon on the Plain, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Uh, the reason we think it's the Sermon on the Plain is verse 17 tells us he came down and preached it on a level place. Uh, probably, just like we would hear, in fact, I listened, Aaron Coffey was at Faith of Davison uh, last week, and hopefully he doesn't listen to these messages, but he, and, I, and so I watched the sermon this week, and it was one that he had preached here. You know, so he's a traveling evangelist, and people do that, and Christ probably did that as well. Has a message, and he preaches it in different places, and we see different perspectives. So uh, we've talked about that before. But basically, the message could be Discipleship 101. He's taking his disciples that he's called, the 12, and there's other disciples with him as well. You can read through the passage. And he's bringing them down, and he's giving them really their first internship after being called as disciples. And the, the sermon really answers the question, how do you know if you are blessed of God? How do you, f you know if the favor of God rests upon you? A way we might say it is, how do you know if you're really a follower of Jesus Christ? In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is not just an ethical way to live. It's not just like high ideals. Today we're going to come to the, the teaching of Christ that the world probably most embraces, the golden rule. And many people will tell you that following the golden rule is, is kind of the highest ethical teaching, and that's the way we're going to get into heaven. Well, I followed the golden rule. I was good to my neighbor. And they get it backwards. Here's how they get it backwards, okay? They, unbelievers, many will say, if I follow the golden rule, it means that Christ will accept me. You've got to reverse that. If Christ has accepted you, you will follow the golden rule. See the difference? No one here, I hope, no one here is banking on their hope of heaven because you treat others better than you, the way you would like to be treated, the golden rule. But you're banking on heaven because of what Christ has done, that he has provided the sacrifice for you. And because he has done that, you live out what he says. There's a completely different way of looking at it. The Beatitudes began this message, verses 20, Jesus' message, verses 20 to 28, where people who are poor, spiritually poor, come to God demonstrating they have nothing, and then they hunger and they weep and they're persecuted. And so now Jesus is going to go and say, well, what does a follower of Jesus do in that situation? Okay, we, we've, already, we've already gone through the fact that when you come to Christ, you come to him with nothing. And one thing that I'll point out again, because it was very meaningful to me, is that when you look at the Beatitudes, look in your Bibles at verse 20, 21, and 22, the first three that Luke records. Blessed are you poor. There's no word now. But then in verse 21, blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. There, the idea is that the weeping and the hungering will change, but the poor never changes. Okay? When we realize our spiritual state of bankruptcy and we come to Christ having nothing, it doesn't change. But the hungering for God that we have will one day change because one day we'll be in his presence fully satisfied. The weeping for our sin will one day change because one day we'll be in his presence totally free from sin. But only the spiritually poor have those experiences. Only the spiritually poor are persecuted. Notice verse 21, hated, excluded, reviled. Did you uh, hear about what happened to D. James Kennedy's ministry this week? They are now classified as a hate group, right? And I mentioned, uh, verse 28 says, Woe to you when men speak well of you, but blessed are you when you're, when you're hated and persecuted for my sake. 
And I talked about the, the, the ultimate men speaking well of you is, is the late night talk show when someone gets on there and voices, well, I believe all there's diversity and everything and families come in all shapes and sizes and we can believe anything we want. Oh, hooray, hooray for that. Uh, and, and they're praised. And then the person who comes on who dares to say, have you ever watched Larry King live when they have, uh, in the years gone by, when they have a MacArthur or a guy who's right on saying, well, Christ is the only way. They get the calls. Who is this guy to say this? Right? Rejoice when that happens to you because that's the way they speak of, verse 23, true prophets. False prophets are embraced by the world, right? They have the great followings. They're appreciated by the culture. Those who stick to Christ and say he is the only way are rejected. We learned about, about that in church history this morning. That happened way back in the first century. Anyway, what is it that marks these followers when they are hated? When we are ex exiled, when we are assailed, when we are excluded, all that is mentioned in verse 22, what marks followers of Jesus Christ is we turn around and we love those individuals. Okay, let's read this section. Verse 27 is where it kicks off. We read it in Matthew. Let's read a little bit in Luke. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, these people who treat you this way. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who, the word might be abuse you says spitefully use you in the version I'm reading, but it might say abuse you in your reading. Somebody strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks you. From him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, excuse me, men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. There's the golden rule, verse 31. Then he mentions this, if you just do good to those who, who are good to you, what credit is that for you in the final conclusion is therefore verse 36 be merciful just as your father is merciful in john 13 verse 33 and 40 34 jesus says this a new commandment i give to you that you love one another as i have loved you that you also love one another by this all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another this is the mark of a christian i would say that loving others is the supreme mark of a believer. I mean, Jesus states this. By this, all men will know that you're my followers if you, you know, are a great teacher or if you are uh, the Bible memory champ or whatever. He says, if you love one another. Love, Galatians 5.22, is the first of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the, it's the first one. And in the Scripture, the first is of priority. Romans 13.10 says, love is the fulfillment of the law. When Jesus was asked, really tricked, by the lawyer, hey, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus? And you're going to try to trick him. Well, everything hangs on this. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the other commandments, the 318 commandments, can fit in those two categories, loving God and loving one another. And the love is what marks us as followers of Christ. Both in the Matthew passage and in this pa I don't know if it's in this passage where it says, well, it doesn't in this passage, but in the Matthew passage it says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor Hate your enemy. You know, in Leviticus 19, verse 18, they are commanded to love their neighbors. But that simply meant whoever agreed with you. Uh, those who had the same interests, your friends. Jesus takes it further saying, I say to you, love your enemies. You know, it's hard for us to even be loving to those who love us. Our selfish hearts are constantly exposed 
that Jesus says it's not just enough to love people who you get along with on a regular basis, but you are supposed to love your enemies. He just, as I mentioned, stated the response that believers will get. They will be hated, excluded, and reviled. And for many of us, the, the response is revenge and retaliation. I'm going to get them back. Or we even say things like, God will get them back. God will take care of them. Jesus says to love those. That's not a very loving response, is it? When we think about loving our enemies, I, I think I'm going to say this later, but it's coming to mind now, so I'll just say it now. I mean, we have public enemies. We have the, the culture as our enemy. I mean, uh, in the sense of they're, they're promoting things that are against what we believe and hold to. Christi- uh, politicians can be enemies of a Christian. Government can be enemies of a Christian. We have, we have those public enemies. And then we have personal enemies, like people that are just, we're just not getting along with, coworkers, friends, even maybe family members. And the easy thing to do is just to, to get this sense of revenge or retaliation. And we may not do it ourselves, but we may, we may have that desire. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He will pay them back. I, I've even heard Christians say things about sinners like, well, then when they get to hell, they'll really find out what's going on. I mean, what a horrible spirit for a believer in Christ. Jesus says to love our enemies and do so much more. This passage is going to explode with real conviction on our hearts, I think. Here's how I want to hang our thoughts on these three words. Listen, love, learn. Listen, love, and learn. That'll be our outline for today, and we'll, we'll go quickly through the first and focus mostly on the second. The reason I start with listen is because it's been difficult for me to get by the first sentence in this section. It says, but I say to those who hear, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Isn't everybody hearing? I, I just was struck by that. I mean, is Jesus only talking, is Jesus talking about the non-deaf? Right? I say to you who hear. I just, it just struck me. So all the people that can hear me, listen. Is that what he's really saying? Skip ahead to verse 47. I think this connects Jesus' thought here. Uh, verse 47 says, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, and, and we know that he is like a person who builds a house and digs deep and is a foundation. Look at verse 49. But he who heard and did nothing, He's like the man who builds his house on the sand. We'll come to that passage. You know that story. Wise man builds his house upon the rock. Here's the two people in the categories. There are people who hear and do, and there's people who hear and do nothing. And so Jesus says, I say to you who hear, implying that we are living in an age where it is easy to, probably easier to hear truth than ever before because of its availability and because of its permissibility. I mean, I could, go, I could go this afternoon and read thousands of free books on Google Books, listen to thousands of free sermons on the Internet, and hear and hear and hear and hear. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there is a great danger for us to hear so much truth and never act on it. That's why he says, but I say to you who hear, I say to those of you that intend to obey, truth that is not lived out makes us hypocrites. It makes the truth meaningless. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says this, and it's in a context of uh, that, that Corinthian church where it says, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. James 1.22 says, hearers only deceive themselves. 
ears that don't act. It's possible for us to be a church and people that are puffed up by this knowledge that is never acted upon. I think that's a danger for us here at Grace. There's a danger because we love truth so much and we have all these opportunities to hear it, but we're never acting it out. We become like this person who's, who's not doing what Christ commands. We can listen to sermons like we're going to hear about loving our enemies and yet still hold grudges. We can hear thousands of sermons on evangelism and still not share the gospel. We can hear a sermon I did on laziness this week and still be procrastinators. We can memorize the scripture and not obey it, and we become these law-abiding Pharisees because we think ourselves to be godly just because we have all this knowledge and information. Knowledge and truth is meaningless unless it is acted out. And we can then become so impressed with ourselves, so full of ourselves because we know so much that we actually look down on others. No one is quite as spiritually mature as me. I have all this knowledge. And we don't want to be tainted with their immaturity. We don't want to be around these people. And, and then, then we're talking about loving our enemies. Knowledge puffs up, and this worries me for myself. It worries me for our church. We must live truth out. Our example must match up with our knowledge. We can often be a cold, unwelcoming church. We can be a judgmental church, a lazy, apathetic church. But look at us. We know a lot. Isn't that a danger? Do you sense that danger with me? Like, oh, oh, we know we're supposed to love, but we don't want to reach out and help and assist other people. We know we have the gospel. We don't want to do that. We, we know we should be busy. We know. Who cares what we know? The judgment comes when we do not obey. So today, as we talk about loving your enemies, that's why I want to talk about listen. Listening really means obeying. And if you're challenged today, love your enemies, and then you don't want to do it, and you don't do it, then you're not really listening at all. Where is the lack of truth in your life? Maybe it's time for us to consider and evaluate that. Let's go on, though, the second thing. I just want to mention that because it really was a burden for me today when I went through that passage this week, those who hear. Okay, so love, second thought. Listen means obey, love. This is the heart of the teaching. How are we to respond? Jesus states we are to love our enemies. Now, you know that this word means agape, a selfish love that seeks the good of others. It's a sacrificial love. Now, I mentioned it even in prayer or earlier in the message, that this is not an, just an ethical teaching that stands alone. This type of teaching of loving your enemies is impossible for unbelievers to, to carry out. It, it only flows from a heart that has already admitted, admitted its spiritual bankruptcy. It, this type of love can only pour out of a heart that is already connected with God, that is hungering for his presence and his word, that is weeping over its sin. Only people who have been touched by a gracious, loving God have the ability to love others in this way. Remember what Jesus says here at the end. We're going to get to it. If you love people that love you, big whoop. That's probably what the Message Bible says. Big whoop, right? Because even sinners do that. The quid pro quo, quid pro quo is that what it is? I don't know Latin very well, but isn't that where... The expectation of something in return. I'll do this for you and you return it to me. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That, that's big deal if you do that. But loving people in a sacrificial way, 
That is only possible because, even as Galatians 5 says, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit produces in our lives. How is it possible? You read the book Unbroken, right? The book about Louis Amparini, the guy who was uh, out to sea for, for a month and a half and then was captured by the Japanese and beaten to a pulp, basically, by this guy called the Bird. And, and then he went to another prison camp. Oh, relief, and there's the Bird again. He's beating him, beating him, beating him. And then he comes back to America. He's got an alcoholic problem. He comes to Christ. Louis Amparini comes to Christ. And what he wants to do is find the bird and forgive him and, and show love to him. How is that possible? Except for a heart that has been touched by God. How is it possible for, I mean, the greatest example, Christ. Coon, 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 coon. Father, forgive them. Stephen, even as the stones are flying at him, Father, forgive them. It is only possible by a heart that has been touched by the grace of God. And don't go patting yourself on the back when you love your enemies because that's only possible through the grace of God in your life too. It is something that we cannot produce. Listen, it's not enough to love our people. I love our people. Big deal. We must love our enemies as well. He expands on what that means. Well, this is, again, we love Christian platitudes, but now he breaks it down into, okay, it, what is loving our enemies? Just kind of having good thoughts towards them? Well, I just hope the best for them. Is that really what love is? Look at, he, he says three things about it, of what this love should be. Okay, let's do a little Bible study. Love your enemies, then, then I would say letter A under that, is do good to those who hate you. What kind of love is that? Someone can answer. What, what does that really mean? Do good. What is that? Yeah, actions. This is the first thing. You've got to love with actions. Do good to people who hate you. Whew. Huh? Do good to people who hate you. Then it says, bless those who curse you. What kind of love is that? It's not necessarily action. It's what? Not doing a Japanese movie. Speech. Speech. Love in speech. We, we say things. We bless those who say negative things about us, who might curse us. And then praying, thirdly, would I would say loving with our hearts, loving in action, loving in speech, loving in our hearts, praying for those who, this is a strong word, means to abuse. I mentioned that when we read it, to abuse us. This flies in the face of what we're tempted to do. Our, your spirit wants to reciprocate in kind. I was studying this, and Tony called me. I'm going to embarrass you, Tony. Sorry about that. But we talk about this a lot. So I'm studying this very thing. What are you doing? He says, well, I'm getting ready for Sunday. I hope it's an encouraging message. And he says, remember what he said? There's this guy in front of me that won't move. Honk, honk, honk. Right? I mean, and that, that's a simple thing. This person is not your enemy, but you, we just want to reciprocate. Someone lashes out at you. What, do you, what does your flesh want to do? And I'm not even talking about our enemies. Let me just be real open, because I think all of you will, uh, will not in agreement with this. When, 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 when Leah says something that may be corrective to me, or, or a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, negative, I know this is shocking that she would ever say anything negative to me, you know what immediately happens in my flesh? I just want to, I recoil against that. And I want to say something like, well, what about... Don't you, don't you do that too? Please not so I don't feel, well, our pastor, he's a loser. We ha that's our flesh. It just, 
It just, and that's the person I love the most in the world. Now tell me to do that to someone else. This is a high and lofty command that he is giving us here. And I'm not just supposed to walk away saying, God bless you all. I'm supposed to be doing good. I'm supposed to be acting upon them, blessing them with my words, encouraging when I am maligned, praying when I am abused, instead of seeking for ways to retaliate. Love is not something we think or feel. It is acted on. We do good. We bless. We pray. People who have hurt or hated or harmed us. I think the passage is instructive, too, because... Uh, I, I liked, and, and this is just a quick aside, uh, even when it talks about striking us on the cheek, and we'll talk about that in just a second, it's almost like, well, am I supposed to stay in like an abusive relationship, or am I supposed to expose myself to physical violence? Of course not. Isn't it interesting that he says, when people abuse you, you pray? It's like you're stepping away from that situation. I think that's, that's just an aside for me. So when he said, oh, strikes you on the cheek, I'm just supposed to stay here? And just take what really is Jesus is going after is the heart. Is when I am hurt, what is my response? Do I want to retaliate or do I want to demonstrate love? That, that is the point. And again, we all re- I just gave you an illustration. We all recognize how difficult it is to do with the people that we love the most in the world. Now we're supposed to do it with people who slam the door in our face on visitation or joke and make fun of us at work because we go to church or... Uh, neighbors who give us a hard time about different things, we're supposed to love and, and pray and do good. Do good for them. Take neighbors' freshly baked cookies after they, uh, after they revile you. That, that's the idea here. Not that that's the only thing, but I'm just, I just, that's the example that came to mind, maybe because I like cookies. He gives us some personal illustrations here. Okay, How, what, if, what, if, what if this happens in your life? I have two. Someone hits you on the face or someone steals your coat. Can I summarize these, how I think, what he means here? What I mean love love should endure and what love should do? Let's talk about these. So it's verse uh, 29. If someone strikes you on the cheek, now people think differently about this. This word really means to take a sock in the jaw. Uh, but other people thought it meant it's more of an insult, like to be kind of <laughs> slapped on the face like that. In either case, a form, maybe a friend has hurt you or a, a neighbor has insulted you. The Lord is not saying to endure physical abuse, but we should be willing to endure humiliation and insult, and especially if it's because of the cause of Christ. So the way I summarize this is that love suffers. Love suffers under this idea of striking the cheek. I suffer. I suffer humiliation. I suffer insult. I may even suffer personal harm or personal hurt, but I'm willing to suffer. Remember when Peter and John were beaten, Acts chapter 4, is it 4 or 3, where they come out and they say they were beaten and told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, and they say we've counted ourselves worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Okay? And then the second one, someone steals your coat uh, or takes your cloak. That would be like this outer, you know, this would be a cloak, and this would be a, like a tunic. You wear these things. This is why when Peter jumps off the ship, he takes off his outer garment, and he says he was naked. Well, he wasn't completely naked. He had taken off his outer coat and had this under tunic on. And so Jesus is saying, well, so what if someone wants this or steals this? Say, hey, would you like this too? The idea here, I, I would say love sacrifices. Love suffers, and then love sacrifices. It, 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 if we are mistreated, continue to give. If someone takes something from us, 
continue to give. That's really what verse 30 is continuing on when he says, give to everyone who asks you. Be a giving, suffering, sacrificing person. And often we simply do this because we are expecting something in return or we think it will give us an advantage down the line. The principle is expressed in verse 31 as the golden rule. Not simply a nice way to live, but the mark of true followers of Christ. Now, Jesus, uh, this isn't original with Christ, this golden rule. Maybe you've heard this before. There, I have a book on Luke that had two pages of uh, other historical places where this phrase was said in a different way. Probably 20 different instances where people said the golden rule in a different way. There was one major difference, though, and maybe you've heard what this is. The difference is, in all of those 20 or so different ways, it's always mentioned in the negative. It, it's never mentioned, I mean, look at what Jesus says. As you want men to do, you do to them. But the way it was always worded in history was, don't do to other people what you wouldn't want done to you, right? If you don't want someone to steal your things, then don't go around stealing other people's things. Uh, Jesus turns it around. Here, here's the three ways that, that came to me as far as how Jesus demands the golden rule be exercised, okay? Uh, and, and we even say it negatively to our kids. You know, if, if someone is mean in our home or in your home, you might even say, well, how would you like it if they did that to you? Right? We, we still express it that way. But here's how Jesus expressed it, these three ways. First, he expressed it as, it as positive. Positive. The golden rule for Christ is not just withholding bad actions. It's doing good ones. See, the difference with Hillel and Confucius or whoever else were listed in those pages and pages of negative things is that those are, those are just... Those are just Keep yourself from doing negative things. Like, restrain yourself from doing bad things to people where Jesus is saying, go ahead and do good things for people, even enemies. You see the difference? I hope so. It's positive. And second, it's proactive. It's proactive. It's something that we need to exercise before something happens, right? We don't respond to what people do. We say, well, you know, I would really like if people were friendly and welcoming to me, so I will be friendly and welcoming to others. I would really like to receive a call when I uh, am discouraged and down, so I will call others. We don't wait for something to happen to us and then respond. We proactively exercise love to others and especially to the pastors telling us our enemies. Beca and this is why the golden rule is so golden and different than what the world believes is because if you wait for your enemies to do something good to you and then you respond, how long are you going to be waiting? Your enemies are never going to do anything good for you. So that's why Jesus is saying, do to them anyway. Do to them anyway. It's, it's proactive. It's positive. And the third thing is it's personal. One thing I noted in the passage, the whole passage, verse uh, 27 to 36, is how many times the word you was used. I think it's something like 19. Um, starts with love your or you or your love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who spite use you strikes you on the cheek you know over and over and over this is a personal thing this is not something that is to mark all christianity right how do you expect anything to mark all christianity if it doesn't first mark you Does that make sense 
I mean, well, I really would. I really wish our church was a loving church. I really wish our church would reach out to the community. I really wish our church would be known as a friendly, loving church. I hate everybody. Right? It's a personal thing. You must be responsible. I must be responsible for me. You must be responsible for you. And again, it, it, it's a very proactive thing. You should be looking for opportunities to exercise uh, specific, non-selfish, sacrificial, over-the-top love for people who hate you. Think right now. No one's going to ask you, who's, you, who's your arch enemy? I mean, we don't really have, I mean, when, when you think about our world, who, who really is it that hates us, excludes us? Who is it? Maybe, maybe it is a specific person. Maybe it's a nasty neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker that just teases or mocks you all the time. Maybe it's a family member who isn't a believer and, and mocks you. Or maybe it is just a general, maybe it is just a movement in our society that you're just angry at. You, are, you hate that about society or, or whatever. In what ways can you, this week, obey this scripture? See, it's, it's not just, I don't want us to just leave with a theory. Because then we fall back into what I, what I admonished us at about the beginning, that we become this puffed up church. We become like this cartoon character with a big brain full of spiritual knowledge. And we're not doing anything. So that's why I say, who is the person? Think of that person right now in your mind. And then what will you do this week for that person? And next week, we'll all stand up and everybody will say what they did for who. Wouldn't that be something if we did that? Hey, what'd you do for Joe or Tim or wh what'd you do? Because if you're not doing it, then you are doing what the passage says in 47 and 49. You're hearing it. Oh, yeah, I love those people, love those people. But if you're not doing it, you're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. I hope you thought of a person. Maybe you're so well-liked that nobody hates you. There's no friction in your life. Then there's a concern, too. Because the passage tells us that we will be hated, we will be excluded, we will be reviled. So it, maybe it isn't a personal uh, individual. Maybe it is a, a group or a, or a theory. Or You have to look maybe a little harder for people to really bless and encourage. Isn't it, it, it you know, people, people make, this is just an aside, I wasn't going to say this, but people, and that's, I get into danger when I do that, but people in the culture often view Christians as, as people that they just don't want to be around because they are such judgmental, hate-filled people. And that's an excuse. We understand that. That's an excuse. But sometimes we give them that excuse, don't we? We, we give them that excuse. We, there, should, there should never be, I mean, yes, we, we, obviously we hate sin, we're intolerant of that, but, but we should never project this attitude of a pious or holiest, holier-than-thou or uh, arrogant or unloving. Uh, characterization of our church or us as individuals. Never. Let's not give people that excuse. I love the fact that as we went up and down uh, the streets on visitation, we had great contacts with people. That's showing love to our enemies. Inviting them to hear. So as I mentioned, something can only be true about a community of people if it's true about us as individuals. So what will you do? I wish you'd write it down right now. I wish you'd write down a piece of paper. This is the person, and this is what I must do. Or at least this afternoon, think about it so that you actually do something about this. Third is learn. Listen, love, and learn. We're on the third thing, and let's finish this up. Okay? There's a section here in verse 32 to 34 
where Jesus um, compares followers of Christ, true followers of Christ, to, quote, sinners or unbelievers. Uh, he's making the point here, and, and he, he gives three, uh, three illustrations. Uh, verse 32, he says, uh, what if you love only those who love you? Uh, verse 33, he says, what if you do good only to those who do good to you? And then verse uh, 34, what if you lend only because you know you're going to get something back? What Jesus is saying here is that the type of love that he is demanding is superior to the love that sinners show. Why is this type of love superior to the love that sinners show? When Jesus says, if you just give because you know that person's going to give back, well, everybody does that. That's what, sinner, that's what the whole world does. The whole world loves people who love them. This love is superior because it is a supernatural love. It is love that is learned. Where did we learn this love? Christ. The Father, too. But Christ. These reciprocal actions listed in verse 32, 33, and 34, these reciprocating loves, that those are natural loves. Natural people do this. But spiritual people love in the way that Christ is commanding because they are followers of Christ and have the Spirit indwelling them, and they have learned this from God. Let's, let's read these last few verses. We've kind of summarized them. I want to read them. Verse 35. But, there's the transition. He's transitioning from the natural loves that sinners show to the love that he's demanding. Love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing to return. In return, he's summarizing what he's already said. And this is what will happen. Your reward will be great. God sees. I love the passage. Says, God will not forget your labor of love. God will not forget that. When you wrote something down, maybe you jot a little piece on a piece of paper what you're going to do to that neighbor or whoever's your enemy. So I'm going to do this because I'm commanded to do this and I want to develop this heart of love for people. God sees that and God's going to reward that. But greater than that, it says, you will be sons of the Most High. You will be sons of the Most High. That doesn't mean that by doing this, you become a Christian. Don't misunderstand. Well, if I love and, and do good, hoping not to lend, hoping not to re uh, return uh, in return, then I will be sons of the Most High. I will be a Christian. No, it means you will look like God. You will, you will be imitators of him because that's the way he is. You learned it from him because he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. I thought about that during the eclipse uh, this week, and I thought about all, millions of people looking up at the sun with those goofy glasses on, right? They're looking up. I mean, almost the whole country And these unbelieving farmers who planted their crops in the spring get the sun, and they get the rain. That's what he says. I think he says that in the Matthew passage. I think we read that this morning. They get to enjoy the things of life. They get to go to barbecues and watch college football and enjoy their grandchildren and knit and enjoy all... Knit, that was a weird one. But they enjoy all the, they enjoy all the things of life. That's called God's common grace. God's common grace, that life in general is pretty good for people because God is kind to the unthankful and evil. And if God is, un is kind to the unthankful and evil, then what right do you have to hold a grudge or to think negatively or to look down upon people or to recoil or, or react with revenge? 
You know, if we were in God's position, if you were in God's position, what would you have done with the wicked? With your omnipotence? You know, it, I mentioned how I react when I'm confronted by someone who loves me the most in the world and how we all, conf- are, when we're confronted with negativity, how we just want to, re- you know, if I was the good, all-powerful, holy God of the universe, I would have incinerated all creation immediately. And so would you have. Right? Think about this verse in Romans 5, verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were enemies. God sent his son to die for people who were rebels. And this is why he can call us to a position, verse 36, of mercy, because he himself is merciful. The sacrifice that he made for us was while we were enemies, yet somehow we feel superior to our enemies and we can act differently than God himself would, then we haven't learned anything about God. When we love others like this, we are showing our family resemblance. And you know what that does for people who are enemies? They get a glimpse of God. You get that? It can be a draw to people when we love them like that. You know, I have hated you for years and you continually love me. How can you do that? It's an opportunity for you to express God to them. And you even express God. You look like God looks. That's what it says. You will be sons of the Most High. You will look like Him. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Because this is how He acts in a merciful way. We, as followers of Christ, must act that way as well. Are you a person, and are we people who are known by our love in our action, in our speech, in our prayers? How many times in the last week have you prayed for people who have shown themselves to be enemies of the gospel? Oh, may the Lord grant us the grace to love our enemies and be merciful to those who mistreat us. And may we ever increasingly become like our Father, our merciful Father who showed us his love even while we were his enemies. How can we do any less than what God has already done for us? And I pray that that will be the case for us. Our Father, how grateful we are that in your mercy you sent Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were your enemies, you reconciled us to God. Father, 